Lord uh, in your day-to-day. But, as you probably know, we are in the seventh psalm, and we're slowly making our progress through. And you guys have been fantastic in uh, sticking with it. Uh, The seventh psalm. And the title of this sermon is How to Handle Betrayal. How to Handle Betrayal. And let us go to the Lord once more and behold him and read his word together. Psalm number seven. A Shigayon of David which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high or sit on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. May you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I'll give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh the Most High. That is God's true your sufficient word. Uh, May we seriously consider it, uh, how it shapes our own lives and our own worship. What is it like to be stabbed in the back? Have you guys felt that before? It feels something along the lines of overwhelming disappointment, uh, uncontained, unbridled, Rage. Uh, There might be one pulsating word that is continuously ringing in your head over and over again, asking why. 
Why? Why? But like every good Christian you are and you try to take your troubles to the Lord, we are called to lay all of our burdens at the feet of Jesus and submit all of our worries before Christ. And in this circumstance, we are betrayed. Uh, The question is how? How do I do this? In the heat of the moment, in the reflecting, in the quietness upon our beds, in our rooms, in our cars, whatever it may be, when the temptation is to rage and curse, how do we do this? How do we lay this kind of burden at the feet of Jesus? How are we supposed to submit even our betrayals to God uh, when we are innocent? How are we to be gracious and entrust our trials and persecutions to the Lord. Our psalm this morning speaks to this very occasion. David addresses this very feeling we feel when we are reviled, when we are slandered, when we are gossiped about, and yet we are called not to revile nor slander nor curse in return, but we are to entrust our Heavenly Father, with our emotions and our burdens. There's a man named Cush. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, or a Benjaminite. Nowhere else in Scripture is this man named Cush to be found. The interpretation of his name is unclear, as he can just be one man or a group of men, uh, most, most likely based upon the grammar and the implications, as we shall see in this psalm, uh, David is referring probably to one man, a man who most likely grew close to David and, in fact, in truth, was not, uh, not actually loyal to David, but actually more loyal to his tribesmen, King Saul. Uh, therefore, we would probably in the occasion of the psalm, move away as we have in the previous weeks from uh, the saga of Absalom to uh, a previous moment in David's life. Um, and here we find, at the beginning at the superscript, we find the man only mentioned once in Scripture. We find David and we find the song that he sings to the Lord. And this song is called a Shigayon. A Shigayon. Or an irregular, wild, erratic, passionate song from a younger David when he was on the run from Saul. The Shigion would be the perfect fit for this kind of song, for this kind of feeling, for this kind of occasion. Uh, the distress, the bewilderment fits most well with David's feelings concerning this man. But David still forces himself upon his knees and goes to the Lord. How often our prayers are not the neatly organized, neatly packaged, formalized prayers we present to other people when we're at church. When we're with our family, when we're praying over a meal, when we're with our friends. If there's anything we can learn from this first mysterious term, it would be that it is okay 
it is more than okay to bring our shigayons to the Lord. For God still receives these erratic, irregular, wild kind of prayers of his saints. So in this shigayon, David is modeling for us what the proper response one should have when they are wronged, when they are slandered, when they are betrayed, when the innocent is wrongly accused. David sings that he will entrust himself and his innocence to the Lord and to the Lord alone. And so for this morning, we'll break down in this text uh, three sections or three ultimatums that David banks his innocence on, his righteousness and his protection upon only the character of God. So our first ultimatum would be innocence or destruction. Either give me innocence, prove me innocent, or destroy me. Innocence or destruction. And we'll see that in verses 1 through 5. Second, we'll see vindication or judgment. Either vindicate me, Lord, prove me to be right, or judge me for all that I am. And we'll see that in verses 6 through 9. And lastly, in this larger final last section, We'll see David asking for protection or indignation. Protection or indignation. And verses 10 through 17. And so let's look at verse 1 after the superscript. Oh, Yahweh, my God, in you do I take refuge. David opens with a cry to Yahweh Elohim. And we want to just stop right here. David, if you notice, uses specifically the twofold name of Yahweh, one highlighting God's covenant faithfulness, the same name used by Moses in where? Genesis 1. Yahweh highlighting God's covenant faithfulness and Elohim highlighting God's unique, God-like character qualities that is different from, that sets him apart, makes him different from all the rest of us. But David, notice here that David says, my God. So it's not Yahweh Elohim, but Yahweh Elohe. And and I think that's the use of this first personal pronoun indicates just that greater level of intimacy going on here. David is seeking here. Um, Only elsewhere, the only only other psalm that this construction of, of this address, Yahweh, Elohim, Yahweh Elohe is in Psalm 104. And so I just want to highlight to you the personal desperation David is expressing from his address to God alone. And that just begs immediately the question for us in our prayer lives. When you pray, how do you dress the Lord? Some of you might say, Heavenly Father. Some of you might say, Dear God. Some of you say, Oh Lord. I've listened to prayers of Oh, dear sweet baby Jesus. Uh, Some of you address God and some, whether we do it intentionally or not, in a haphazard way. It's as if you barely acknowledge him. You just immediately skip addressing God and just get to the meat of your prayers, get to the meat of your issues here. You give little to no consideration of the name that you are addressing, the name above all names. You just want to get to the, your troubles, your concerns, your prayer requests. 
I want to pause right here and observe how serious, how solemn David is when he is addressing, addressing God from the outset. And so I want to encourage you to slow down. Slow your prayers down. Address God, go to God, and let God's name cause you to consider, to meditate, to familiarize yourself with who he is. Names such as uh, Yahweh, Adonai, Lord Adonai, God, Elohim. And this isn't done so not to colorize your prayers or give your prayers, you know, that that zing that you needed. Uh, But let the names of God ground your prayers and therefore by extension help you grow in your intimacy with God. Because you're trying to understand through his name who he is. And so notice how. In verse 1 and then in verse 3, David uses this address twice. As if not just to start his prayer all over again. Just like, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. <laughs> let, me, let me start again, Heavenly Father. No, 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 no. It's, he's going back to God again. Uh, to, to re-petition, to re-prostrate himself before his Heavenly Father. I do want to draw a careful line here. Notice the intentionality behind the use of God's name. I neither want to affirm nor condemn uh, the use of Lord, Heavenly Father, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, or any other of God's names as filler words, because I'm guilty of that too in our prayers. But I just want to impress upon you the intentionality, the seriousness behind David's use of God's name. I think the fourth commandment David took very seriously. David then moves to address God and indicates his relationship with God. In you do I take refuge. In you I have taken refuge. Uh, More literally, in you I have placed, placed, set upon my trust. Um, The verb is, far more picturesque than the action that it implies. It literally means to place trust in a trustworthy place uh, or in a refuge. Notice how the action of the verb is in the perfect, meaning David has placed his trust in the past. He has taken his refuge in God sometime in the past, and this past action has continuous, enduring ramifications in the present. It's as if David is saying, God, I've placed my trust. I've placed my faith in you in the past. And you know for a fact that this trust has not changed. But I'm announcing it to you again. Uh, Because I need to hear it. You need to hear it, God. Look more in parallel fashion. David says, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. And this makes absolute perfect sense in the context of the previous verb used. If David is under the the wings and the auspices of God and the refuge of God, then perfectly he can ask the Lord to deliver from his physical situation. Notice the use of the term all. David is saying only God can save him from all situations. All peoples who pursue him. All of those who hound him. And David states again, deliver me. Save me and Deliver me. Snatch me from the hand of my pursuers. Bring me into your refuge, your, as the millennials like to call it, your safe space. It's as if David is running to dad first. 
I'm sure most of you here have siblings. And if you get to dad or if you get to mom first, if you state your case first, most likely what happens? Dad or mom will, will listen to you more. That's just how things are. It's as if David puts forth his case first and makes his pleas known first. We haven't even heard a word from or about this Cush the Benjaminite guy. What has taken place? But from the outset, David makes his plea known to God. He expresses his needs first to God before he makes his situation known. Again, this is something we can learn to model our prayers after as well. Do you express your need to God first? Do you lay everything out before the the feet of the Lord, expressing your troubles before you ask for anything else, before you ask for a solution? Do you confess your sins to God first before asking God to deliver you? David finally gives indication to a situation in verse two. Alternatively, God, if you do not save me, he will tear my soul like a lion. He will rend my soul into pieces. Uh, David saw his adversary. This couldn't be the man named Cush or his superior Saul. But regardless, there was a man who posed a great threat to David. The question then becomes, how does this man Cush or Saul have anything to do with David's soul? How can he touch his soul? I think David had a robust understanding of the dual nature of man. Man is both body and soul. He is both physical and spiritual. He is both immaterial and material. And therefore, when he uses the term soul, he prioritizes the fact that if he was not innocent, if this man Cush and his accusations held any water, then ultimately, not only would his body be in jeopardy, but more importantly, his soul would be as well. Because David then would not be able to stand before just men only, he would definitely would not be able to stand before God. And so if what this man named Cush says is true, then David is right in identifying then that none will be able to deliver. Because David will be held accountable to God. So, get, so David goes to God for deliverance. David says, if his accuser is right, if he succeeds, if the words that this man Cush says is true, then God will not be able to deliver him because the roles will be switched. God will be the judge. This is not to say God is incompetent, but rather it's a matter of right or wrong, innocence or guilt. Notice the transition from verse two to verse three. David moves back call to God to defend his innocence. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands, David wants God to ensure his innocence here. Test me, prove me, try me. So he intimately calls upon God again. Yahweh, Elohei, if I have done this, we don't don't know what David has done, but it would relate to some kind of accusation or accusations levied against him by Cush, And if those accusations were true, he says, if there are injustice on my hands, if I have repaid my friend, my friend, or the man he thought was his friend, with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then 
let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. I let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Now here, parallelism used, is used to unveil more of what has happened. David may be accused to be unjust in some kind of scenario. David says, if I've rewarded evil to my friend, it sounds like instead of rewarding, um, instead of rewarding good for evil or evil for good, um, David is the one who has robbed him, has swindled him. And there's an irony here. David was betrayed by this man, Cush, on the grounds of accusation of betrayal from David. And now David seems to be running through some kind of list of what he could be accused of. He thinks, maybe I have plundered him. Maybe I have um, done something without cause to my adversary. Plundering often was commanded by God to the people of Israel as they were to wipe out the surrounding nations, leave no survivors, and yet they were able to enjoy the spoils of war. Here David questions whether he has done so to his enemy without the sanction of God. And so regardless of reason, David reserves his questions to God alone. In verse 5, David completes his case of building his innocence and he looks to bring curses upon himself. He allows his enemy, Cush or Saul, to succeed in their endeavors of hunting him down. Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground. Let the enemy lay my glory in the dust. It's as if to say, if I am not innocent, then let these curses take place because they must take place. Selah. While thinking and studying this section, my mind kept going back to that scene Again and again, where the righteous and noble King Mufasa is desperately clinging to that ledge, to his brother. And he's holding out on hope that it is only his brother who can save him. And Mufasa is probably wondering, brother, save me. I've done so good to you and we have such a good relationship. But in that last moment, he hears those infamous words, long live the king, and is betrayed by the one he thought was closest to him. And I think, wow, that's so similar to this. It's truly a, uh, nothing is new under the sun. Let's look at Selah. I want to draw your attention to this liturgical pause. The pause and consider breath mark. As you probably noticed, it's only used once here. Once in this Shigayan is Selah used. Now, probably for dramatic effect. While this erratic, irregular, changing meter kind of a psalm that reflects the turmoil within David's heart, David employs just once, Selah, for dramatic effect. As if in that pause, he is actually pondering death itself. 
it's, it's, it's as if uh, David is pondering, maybe my enemy is actually right here. Because just before this, he pronounces three curses upon himself. And if he is found to be in fault, I'm sure, uh, because I'm a man and you are men and you are women, David might be subtly or subconsciously wondering, what if I did do something? What if that man, Cush, was actually right? What if I'm being hunted for something I have truly unjustly done? David, the man after God's own heart, would doubt in his faith, uh, would always waver at points. And so therefore, in this Selah, confession is always good for the soul to pause and to meditate. Let Selahs give room for meditation. Build a Selah into your prayers. Allow there to be empty space. Just as rests give spacing and time for notes to resound and chords to echo and reverberate. Let say laws be thoughtful, meditative pauses that give you that intangible flavor to your prayers. When you think, when you pause, when you meditate, you think with the Lord. The Lord knows all things. He knows your heart and he knows your innermost thoughts. But sometimes we as humans, we as the creature, need to consider our thoughts as well. We need to weigh them upon the scales of God's truth and God's character. And so I think it is perfectly fitting for David to pause here. To insert a Selah and consider his actions. Consider the curses he just brought upon himself. Maybe at that time those were rash words that David wished he could have taken back. But they were still recorded Anyways, God can use all kinds of emotions in the vein of inspiration. So why not these weighty, possibly rash words that David uh, may have considered retracting? Ultimatums are not handled lightly in Scripture. Our outline is built around them. And here at the conclusion of our first point, these first five verses, consider David's first ultimatum. David knows deep down in his heart that he is innocent. Uh, but would you go to length to risk your own dis- destruction to prove you are right before God? Can the same be true for you? Would you, when you are wrong, when you are maligned, when you are slandered, would you risk complete and utter destruction? Would you risk the grave on the grounds of your innocence? I think hardly any one of you would give, if you're being intellectually honest, you would be willing to do that. And I think that speaks to our recognition that we need the righteousness of another. We are part and parcel of that richer group known as, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But when we are clothed in the righteousness of another, I think that raises the level of our boldness, does it not? I think when we have Christ in our corner, we can stand in the ring of any accuser, any betrayer, anyone who point the finger at us. That is because we know who is on our side. So in the same way, David can do the same here. This outrageous boldness or confidence to bring upon curses upon himself is bolstered and grounded only by his relationship to God. 
And therefore, the only application for us is to look to God, meditate on him, worship him, love him, thereby bolstering our relationship with him. A vibrant relationship with God enables us to have godly confidence in all situations. Let's move on. Second ultimatum, vindication or judgment. Verse six, David says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Notice the change in tune to David's prayer here. Hear this fresh prayer looks ahead. Asking God to arise is no small thing. It is akin to asking God to act. But look to what end is David asking. Arise, Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself, meaning mount yourself up, position yourself against my enemies. David is not just asking Yahweh to match the rage or the anger of David's enemies, but to go over the top, to overwhelm them. Arouse yourself, raise yourself up for David's cause. For you have appointed a judgment. Look at the contrast David is drawing here. While the anger of his enemies are excessive and they're labeled as rage, which is one step further from any normal anger, the anger of the Lord is always the right amount. Meaning God is ruling and reigning in his rightful Place. The second half of this verse is an interesting lexical decision to be made here. Um, it is one of the few places where I think most of you guys have NIV Bibles. Raise your Bible if you're, if you're using NIV. Whoa, okay, never mind. I take that back. But it is in one of the few places where I believe the NIV gets it right. I'm not an NIV hater. I think they're just better modern translations. You can talk to me about that later. But... Look at the latter half of this section. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you over it. Return on high. What does return on high mean? I think NIV, what does the NIV say? Sit amongst the people. Sit over the people. David is asking Yahweh to sit over, to preside over the people. Let God be in his rightful place. And this makes perfect sense in our context. David has been petitioning God to prove his innocence, to vindicate him, to asking God to judge and do his thing. And so David continues his commentary and says, Yahweh, God, judge the people, judge everybody. The people Yahweh presides over. And this is just simple theology proper on display here. God is judge and there is no other. But look at the following plea based on this basic understanding that God is judge. He says, vindicate me, Yahweh. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. Prove me to be right. Prove me to be innocent. Try me and discover and display that I am innocent to my enemies. Look at David's basis of his plea. According to my righteousness, according to my integrity, my inherent righteousness and my integrity. As we have mentioned before, we are with David in this camp of all have fallen short of the glory of God. What is going on here? How can David have that confidence to judge me according to my righteousness and according to my integrity that is in me? We all know that 
we are all totally depraved. What kind of righteousness are you talking? Where did you get this secret righteousness, David? What is going on here? Is David perfect? Is David morally blameless and upright? I want to color and nuance your understanding of righteousness. Oftentimes the Pauline concept of righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ that makes us blameless before the final judgment of the Lord is actually not in view in the scriptures. Be careful with context. This imputed concept exists in the Old Testament as the promises of both Old and New Covenants um, express that very need of the righteousness of another. Even Genesis 3 makes that need that the seed of the woman representing mankind is going to crush the head of the serpent. However, what is more in play in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, is another side of righteousness which highlights righteousness in action, righteousness in the day-to-day. In other words, functional righteousness. Uh, Time and time again, the Psalms will extol the virtues of the righteous and cry out for vindication or judgment against the wicked. The righteous will cry out, how long will we suffer? How long will the wicked prosper? But if we have a robust theology or a robust anthropology, we would come to understand, wait, none is righteous. No, not one. How can this work? And I would submit to you to broaden and deepen your understanding of faith. By grasping the nature of faith, primarily how faith played a role in the Old Testament saints' salvation, like David, for example, you would understand that it is perfectly right and fair for David and others to number themselves among the righteous. This is not an inherent righteousness of their own, but rather the righteousness that still comes from God. We, on this side of the cross, look backwards to view the cross and its effects for man and women of faith. However, on the Old Testament side, uh, the Old Testament saints would look forwards with a less than clear picture of the cross, but that is still faith nonetheless. We would base our faith on what is recorded, what has happened, but David based his faith on what was to come, what will happen. All of faith finds its final resting place on the cross. Therefore, it makes perfect sense for David to ask God to judge him based upon his righteousness because he has faith in God. His faith is counted to him as righteousness, just as God counted the faith of his forefather Abraham as righteousness, thereby enabling David and all other saints who Old Testament saints who sang this song, who cried out these erratic Shagayan prayers to God and to plead for God to judge and thereby vindicate them. They stood guiltless by declaration. And just as you and I stand guiltless by declaration before God based upon faith, that faith is the connection we as New Testament, New Covenant saints and uh, find with our brethren of the old. That is why the Psalms still not, make, not only make sense for us in our situations, but also apply to us as well. That is why we are able to cry out to God, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. We are able to sing with David as we shall see next week, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. 
God. Because our faith comes from the same marrow. It comes from the same vein. It comes from the same fount as all faith has before it. That's why we have a hall of faith. That's why we have a great cloud of witnesses who give testimony to God's goodness before us. God's righteousness. And finally, they give testimony to God's judgment and subsequent vindication. David concludes this section of pleading for God's vindication with the commentary that the wicked and their wickedness will come to an end. But the righteousness shall be established. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, oh, righteous God. The righteous shall be established. They will be built up. They will be fortified. They'll be strengthened. The Psalms fortify our faith because we identify with David at a one-to-one ratio. We see eye to eye. Because the righteous God tries the hearts and minds of both the righteous and the wicked. This righteous God knows and identifies and subsequently justifies the faith of the righteous. And condemns the faithlessness of the wicked. Let's move to our final ultimatum here. Verses 10 through 17. David is asking for either give me protection or Show me your indignation, protection or indignation. David's confidence is completely with God once more. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. Just how God is a shield to David in Psalm 5, as we saw a couple weeks ago. Here, David declares that he is a shield once more. He offers protection and saves David from uh, his enemy's deadly attacks, indicating also that God is also his salvation. Notice again that David numbers himself with the upright, those who can stand before the judgment. Second, David declares God as the righteous judge. God is a righteous judge in verse 11, a God who feels indignation every day. He's reinforcing everything he has stated earlier concerning God's character as judge. Furthermore, David indicates that the anger of God is burning every day or in indignation for those who are wicked. Verses 12 and 16 indicate another drastic shift in David's song. He has finally, finally finished speaking of his own Condition, his own righteousness, his own need for vindication and protection. And he prepares to sing concerning this man, Cush. Verse 12 literally begins with, if he does not turn back, or if he does not repent. Meaning, if he does not repent, God has no reason to repent either. David has already proved his case and has no reason to repent here. Who is God preparing to go to war against? Who is this man? The imagery in the next four verses is terrifying. God is often described as the warrior God who wars and fights on behalf of his people. And these four lines all contribute describing this character trait of God. God is a warrior. 
God will wet or God will sharpen his sword. His bent and readied his bow. He has fine-tuned and prepared his bow to make it the most hot it can be. God has also prepared for him deadly weapons or various instruments or literally vessels of death. What these were, we're not sure, but it just speaks to the wide variety and range of the tools that our warrior God has at his disposal. And finally, God prepares his arrows to fire upon his enemies. And just as the fiery arrows of the evil one oftentimes are launched at the man or the woman of faith, God too has arrows that will finally lodge themselves in his enemy's breasts, including Satan. All of this is predicated upon this man's lack of repentance. So notice how David shifts back in verse 14 concerning this man. This man, Cush. David describes and contrasts this man. He travails with wickedness or he conceives evil, meaning this is the imagery of a woman conceiving, uh, can't think of the word, just, uh, help me here, ladies, help me here. When you're cooking the baby, gestation, whatever the word, the verb form is, he is, he is cooking his evil as if a woman cooks his baby. And finally, that gives birth to sin. Now you guys will remember this, and now you guys will, when you read this verse, you'll, you'll, you'll remember. I'm sorry, Rachel. Uh, this process of that he's conceiving or he is travailing, he is engaging in a laborious, painful effort akin to childbirth is David's painting here with his but he describes that as his own life. Um, David moves to another image of digging a pit and setting a trap, but then he will ironically fall in the same hole he has made. Um, this one's for the kids, but I used to watch Pokemon as a kid, and there were these enemies called Team Rocket, and they would dig this pit and try to trap the protagonists in every single episode. They will fall into it or they'd be blasted off again or something like that. Uh, Proverbs 26, 27, that the chapter on the fool and his activities notes the very situation as axiomatic or a common occurrence for the fool. It says, whoever digs the pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on the one who starts it rolling. So notice the use of irony here. What comes around goes around. Uh, this is not kind of some kind of a new age argument for uh, karma, but there are certain truths that are so universal that one cannot help but feel sorry for this wicked man. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. <clears throat> David concludes this section on the wicked man. His enemy, Cush, may be his name, with a final ringing verdict. The mischief, the evil of this wicked man has conceived, has been given birth by himself for himself. It will return on his head. And the violence will descend upon his skull or his pate. 
another term for his head. How does one handle betrayal? How does one respond with slander? Uh, whoa, hello. Respond to slander? How do one return to the Lord when life seems stacked against them and they do not, they've resolved that they have done no wrong? David faced off against this enemy who he thought was his friend and ultimately entrusted both of their lives and their fates to the Lord. And Jesus too stood before accusers. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, dearest to him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, the, the leading Jews of the time, in a mock trial and was found guilty where no accusation could be actually proved to be true. Jesus endured the, the mocking, the spitting, the beating from his own people, Israel, the ones whom he delivered from Egypt to give them the land that they were in, to be called his people, and he was to be their God. Jesus endured the slander, the false accusation, and ultimately, as he died upon the cross, he was ultimately vindicated when he arose from the grave. Uh, this, is the com- this is common to the Christian experience. Uh, when Christians stand for the truth of God and the gospel, slander, opposition, betrayal, all will inevitably come. Uh, to pile it on, the Christian is also accused by the enemy. Through every temptation, the enemy tries to persuade the, the Christian of their inadequacy. The enemy tries to lie and deceive the Christian into believing that the cross of Christ is truly not efficacious nor sufficient for his or her sins. And lastly, we have the world, we have the enemy, but also we have our own flesh our own selves that often accuse us. It is easy for the enemy to catch us and trip us up and entangle us in our own weaknesses, in our own fleshliness. However, as we learned and observed already, the Christian stands in line with men like David. This seventh psalm is also a psalm to be sung by the Christian. The Christian has a warrior God who wages on his or her behalf. The cross is seen in the eyes of the world as ultimate defeat, but it was in fact the ultimate triumph for God over the enemy and for over the, the sting of death. And therefore, when you entrust yourselves to God, when you respond and turn back and repent, unlike the man Cush, if you repent and you believe, then you shall be saved. You shall gain a powerful ally in this life and the next. God moves from the opposite corner of that boxing ring and he joins your side. Because ultimately you align yourself with him. And therefore what is more important than anything else in this life is ensuring that you are on God's side. Or you face a far more terrifying foe than any of you faced before. Greater than the world, greater than Satan, greater than your own self-condemnation. You face God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So call out to God like David does. Entrust yourself to him. 
Let him be your shield and he surely shall save and protect you. And no amount of betrayal or slander can ever overcome a God who stands by you and vindicates you on the basis of his righteousness. Let's pray. God, we know and we trust that your words are true, that in your word is eternal life, life everlasting. In your word reveals to us your son, Jesus Christ, whom prophets spoke of long ago and is now uh, fully revealed. And so as we look back at the cross as the saints of old look forward to it, may we behold it and understand that uh, a great debt has been paid, great reconciliation has been won. And so let us live lives that are worthy of the gospel to which we have been called. Help us to entrust our lives to you, regardless of what we may face in this world with friends who become enemies and so on and so forth, God. Help us to do so, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.